Indeed, Free Weed, episode number 68 coming your way. And as always, we'd like to thank DJ Jacques and Winstrong for that for that powerful tune that gets into people's heads, and we love it. It's our theme song, and thank you to those guys. If you want to check it out, it's on SoundCloud. Um, yeah, episode 68. We taped this episode at the Michigan Cannabis Cup uh, just recently, and uh, we have the Seattle Cup coming up right now which is very exciting. We're uh, September 6th and 7th at the Comcast Arena in Everett, Washington. Uh, I'll be doing a grow seminar at that as well. Um, Get your tickets online at CannabisCup.com. The Whalers are performing, which is going to be amazing. They're doing the album Legend, the best-selling reggae record of all time. They're going to play that in its entirety. And I'll say, the Whalers uh, played for us in Amsterdam last year at Mm -hmm. the Milkwig, and they were were really good. They really had the crowd going, so I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be Saturday, September 6th in the evening. Yep. And uh, like I said, ca- CannabisCup.com is where you get tickets for that. Uh, so we're coming to Washington. Very excited about that. Oh. But this episode was taped at our Michigan Cup. We do so many cups now um, that, you know, we just uh, chug through them. So the Michigan Cannabis Cup in Clio, uh, I did something different with this one. I decided instead of doing a panel, um, because uh, the guest is from that uh, from that area, from Michigan, I decided to just do like a nice uh, one-on-one interview with Mr. DJ Short. And uh, for those of you that might not know who he is, uh, he's basically a legend in uh, breeding and ganja growing circles. When I was younger, I mean, he was spoken of in these sort of reverent term, terms and, and very mysterious because, uh, you know, th- this was a completely underground industry and the seeds from DJ Short were just uh, legendary. And, I, you know, in my book, I wrote that he was Canadian because, you know, that's something that I had heard back then. It's actually not true. He's from Michigan. Wait, you wrote that in your book? <laughs> yeah. No fact checkers here at High Times? What happened? <laughs> you know what that? it was? Those Some facts are just really hard to check, you know, yeah. and, that, and, and, and here's I mean, the deal. I guess you could have called him. That gives you... <laughs> <laughs> and maybe not at that time, but that gives you an idea of how sort of underground he was. He was, he, ah. and still, in, to a certain extent, is. He's not a, a media, you know, kind of person. He's not in this for his own glory or anything like that. He's an incredibly intelligent person, um, a psychonaut of sorts, and a great breeder. And if you don't know the name, you certainly know the strains because he's responsible for blueberry, which you know everyone um, who's a connoisseur would know. Uh, has been used not not only the pure blueberry that he made, which is very stable, very amazing, and very unique, um, but it's been used by other breeders and so many different crosses and everything. And we talk about the blueberry, the flow, um, the old time moonshine, all these amazing strains that he's responsible for uh, creating. And also, he has a very interesting, uh, you know, ideas on growing some very unique uh, tips and tricks and things that he's learned over the years, and just a philosophy on cannabis. Uh, on breeding, on what we want from the plant, what the plant gives to us, and all these very interesting and deep uh, thoughts about, um, you know, marijuana. And and it's something we all love, but 
um, he's been able to study it and have been able to really master the art of breeding and growing really amazing and very clean pot. Uh, and concentrates as well. So yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, like you, you said, you normally would do a panel discussion, right. but you do a one-on-one here with DJ Short. And yeah. in case you didn't make Clio, Michigan, because it's hard to get out to Clio. Absolutely, we have recorded this. Yeah, and you guys are in for a treat. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's an interesting discussion. It's wide ranging. We talk about a lot of different stuff. Uh, we took some questions from the crowd, and uh, yeah, he's just a very interesting man with uh, with uh, a lot of. Uh, smart ideas and a lot of uh, insights into this wonderful plant. And as always, I want to remind you guys, the episode is brought to you by BC Northern Lights. Check them out at bcnorthernlights.com and get yourself a really bitchin' grow box. So without further ado, here we go. Hey everybody, how's it going? Thank you for coming out to a live recording of Free Weed from Danny Danko. I don't know uh, how many of you listen to the podcast, the Free Weed podcast. You got some fans? All right. Um, on behalf of Dan and myself, we're really excited to be back in Michigan. It's been three years and it's been too long, so we're, we're really happy to be here with all of you today. Now, normally, what we do at these live free weed recordings is we have a panel, and we get a lot of great grow info, but because we're in Michigan, we have a special treat for you, and I'm going to let Dan explain it. So give a warm hand for our senior cultivation editor, Danny Danko. All right. Thank you, guys. Ooh, that's a hot mic. <laughs> Not you, Mike. <laughs> All right, uh, yes, uh, as Michael said, uh, I, we're just very, very excited to be back here. Um, we've been trying to get back for years, and uh, we finally found a great, amazing venue. Um, so accommodating, so much space, and just, we're very excited about this. We're really, uh, we're going, going home with a really good, good feeling, and, and uh, you guys have really done something here that the rest of the world needs to know about. Um, yeah. Um, but I'm going to get right to it because we have a very interesting guest and I'd like to introduce him. He is uh, a, a world-renowned breeder, an author of Cultivating Exceptional Cannabis, a, a, a wonderful book about how to really dial in your grow and really get exceptional quality cannabis, which is a, makes it a great title as well. Um, also an amazing breeder of such strains. Um, uh, uh, most people know the blueberry. That's like... Uh, you know, a legendary classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's also responsible for a ton of other uh, amazing strains. Flow, in particular, is like in Colorado right now. That's, that's the biggest thing. And uh, Old Time Moonshine and a bunch of others we're going to talk about. Some amazing strains. He's got a lot of very interesting insights into breeding, into growing, um, and into also just the spirituality of, of cannabis and connoisseurship of cannabis. So. Um, welcome, Mr. DJ Short. Thank you. Thank you. I should also mention, I erroneously wrote in my book that he was Canadian, <laughs> because there was so little information uh, at that time about uh, some, some of the more underground breeders. So it's a privilege and a pleasure to have him here. And not only is he not Canadian, 
He's a native Michigander. He's from this area, so we're going to talk about that as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, I told, told my friends up in Canada, I uh, used to say, uh, yeah, I was born north of Canada. Like, what, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, west side Detroit's north of Windsor, so uh, that's, that's uh, where I was born, grew up west side of Detroit, uh, spent a lot of time in the area. Uh, but again, it's good to be back. I, I really like what I'm seeing going on here. I hope things continue, the progress continues, and just keep at it. You know, we got them on the run. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to start, I guess, with the beginning and uh, tell us a little bit. We're, we're definitely going to get into cultivation and breeding and all of that, but I'd like to get into maybe a little bit of your origin story and uh, how you got started. Um, you know, briefly, but, but uh, growing up here and uh, your first interests in cannabis and how that sort of developed. Uh, sure, it was sort of, a, you know, inevitable to happen. I mean, it was 1971, I was 14 years old, going to school here. Uh, those of you that are older that remember the times, I mean, this was just after the riots and things were definitely spiraling down. It was... Uh, depression was setting in pretty nasty. So, I mean, you're 14 years old, you find pot, it's like, thank you. <laughs> um, and so it just went from there. I mean, from the very first time I got high, I just knew, yeah, this, this is my life. Uh, my great-grandmother was a, a gypsy or Romani herbalist. They lived on the east side of Detroit. Matter of fact, uh, they're buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery. At any rate, uh, cannabis was part of her pharmacopoeia, and I found out that she actually got busted growing pot in the city of Detroit in 1938. <laughs> so I, I want to try and find records of this because if it, you know, knock on wood, the bad thing happens, I have to deal with the boogeyman. Um, hey, it's in my blood, you know, what can I say? Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting times. And what were the, some of the strains uh, that were around and, and, and um, you know, there's always this talk of how marijuana is so much stronger these days. T uh, tell us a little bit about um, what it was like back then. Yeah, it might be a little stronger now, but it's not better. Um, back in the day, you have to realize, okay, first of all, late 60s into the 70s, the Balkan majority of the herb that was coming through commercially uh, were these huge we called them mafia loads. It was like 100 tons of pot at a time. Uh, ports in Detroit, things were coming in there a lot. Um, at any rate, that stuff was bunk. It was C-grade if you were lucky, and that was the bulk of majority of what was out there at the time, 30 to 40 bucks an ounce. Uh, basically, it was like, we called it dirt weed. It looked like clumps of dirt with, with, with stems in it. Now, every so often, some of these higher grade loads would come through. Uh, these uh, loads came from people like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who were uh, originated out of Southern California, a bunch of uh, hardcore late 60s uh, jocks, surfers, bikers, alcoholics, heroin addicts, until they found pot and LSD and their mission in life became to turn on the world, and they did a really good job. Um, now their loads, the, the, what I like to call the brotherhood loads, came in at about eight tons, basically what fits in a cargo plane or a step van. 
and the quality, that's where the A-grade herb came from, all right? And there was enough of it as the distribution network uh, developed that we could get it, you know? And we learned early on, again, if any of you remember back in the day, you know, there were so many different things coming through at different times, and when you found that thing that you liked, oh, we saved our pennies, you know? Let's get a quantity of that before it disappears. Because that eight-ton load would last about three months, maybe six at the most. And I tell this uh, story, I think it was about 73, there was a load of Acapulco gold came through about this size, lasted about three months or so. Um, we loved it, we just absolutely loved it. Um, and towards the end of that run, it was just powder, seeds, and stems, all right? But I'll tell you what, I would pay twice what the top shelf green herb is right now for some of that powder, stems, and seeds right now. And not, not just for the seeds either, but just for the magic that that pot was. Um, now here's an interesting side note. All the great herb that we hear about back in the, in the 70s, it was 7% THC. Something else is going on. The most potent herb in the 70s was Maui Waui. It was testing at 10%. Part of this has to do with how the testing companies test now. My opinion is what we need to do is take the whole plant, dry it, bone dry, grind it into a powder, stems and all, and take a little sample of that to get a standard down on what these percentages really are. Because if you pick to test just the frostiest little calyx, sure, you can hit 25, 26% THC ranges, but that's not what's in the whole plant. So again, back in the day, this, this wonderful herb that I'm trying to replicate um, was 7% THC. So other things going on. We know about CBD now, the new kid on the block. The next ones up and coming are CBG, CBA, CBC, THCV, uh, a number of different things. Uh, but it's these ratios that, that make this happen. And we, we've just got a lot of work cut out for us in terms of R&D in that capacity. So uh, maybe we can discuss a little bit of some of your first uh, experiments in cultivation and maybe uh, segue that into uh, how people uh, can start cracking seeds and, and germination and things like that. Sure, sure. My first um, experience with cultivation, mind you, we were trying. I mean, there were seeds in everything. That Colombian, we had to sit there and get the double album cover out to clean the seeds out to make it all uh, work. A lot of those didn't sprout. They just were sterile. And we don't know if it was heat, radiation, pressure, or what. But we were told that on those mafia loads that they didn't want the seeds sprouting. Well, lo and behold, one day out on this patio we all used to get high on pretty regularly, someone noticed coming up between the patio stones, hey, look, there's a pot plant. That's <laughs> where it started. Um, so carefully dug that up. Now, mind you, back in those days, there, you couldn't go to the store and buy pots. You could, there was no potting soil. Um, we had to get like uh, uh, waste baskets, metal waste baskets, and use uh, a can opener around the bottom for drainage, get some gravel out of the driveway in the bottom for drainage, uh, and then dig soil out of the yard. And then that all went under fluorescent lights. I mean, my first couple plants were under a fluorescent desk light. You know, this was the early 70s, and so, oh, there it is, it's growing, it's beautiful. Um, it really wasn't until I got to uh, the West Coast. I left in 1978, which was the year that the Indica 
became commercially available and HID lighting also became commercially available. It was a turning point in, in uh, breeding years. Uh, if, you, if you look back historically, Robert Clark writes a lot about this, the uh, uh, transient nature of cannabis through history and how it was by foot first, uh, India, Africa, out of those ways people carried it, and then um, the, the caravans and, and trade routes taking it. After that, the next uh, great wave was the sailors and people who sailed. They took herb from all over the world and planted it all over the world. Um, and then the next phase came in 1978 when we got all the genetics from the world coming to us and HID lighting. And it, from there is what we've got right now. All right, so let's, uh, let's segue into cultivation and talk about uh, the earliest stages of growth, germinating a seed and um, you know, how to keep a plant short and stocky and healthy. I, I noticed one of the biggest mistakes people make uh, is in, in getting stretchy plants is that uh, they don't pay attention to that first you know couple of weeks of growth. Sure, and bear in mind that the way we've been doing things up to this point is in flux. Okay, um, these big buds, uh, big plants that make big buds is a phenomenon out of California where we are limited by numbers of plants. Same thing here, it's kind of the same for the medical scene. And if you can only grow 12 plants, well yes, you wanna grow the biggest plants possible. But if you want the best pot, you want the smaller plants. You want the ones that stretch a little bit. That's kind of what those sativa do. Um, so prepare for those changes up and coming. Right now, everything is still kind of status quo. We want the big buds, we want the bag appeal, we want the heavy, uh, potent stone. There's a demand for that, there's a market for that, but there are markets for other things that we need to um, look into and try to supply to the world. Now, one of the changes that's up and coming really big is this shift to concentrates, which I'm a huge fan of. I mean, this is how we're supposed to be doing this medicine. The uh, countries that produce hashish, like Afghanistan and uh, uh, Morocco or Lebanon, would mock our consumption of bud, of flower. It's a very low-life, low-class thing to do. Uh, the goal is processed uh, concentrates. And personally, again, I think that's where the future is leaning toward. I mean, you just look at the popularity of the dab scene and how it has developed in the last year or two is just phenomenal. I watch these young people in their basements making a very pure product. When they pay attention to detail and, and get the right information, um, there's nothing wrong with whatever solvent you're using as long as the finished product is devoid of that solvent, right? Um, so just bear that in mind, the future then in terms of concentrates. The reason I bring that up is one of the things I'm looking to do with my R&D research and development work is develop a hash plant. And it's not going to look anything like what we're accustomed to. It's not going to be big, dense buds. It's going to be very leafy, very viney. Um, and when we are allowed to go beyond the numbers, like in Washington and Colorado right now, it's canopy size. However many you can fit in there is your business, all right? So that hash field, is going to look like a field of alfalfa, just green. 
And it should theoretically be able to be multi-harvested through the year because the plants put out resin um, all year. All right, so having said that, um, in, in terms of, of current production, um, whether you need to consider what market you want to satisfy, all right? And if you're after the, the bud market, um, then yes, you're going to want those tight, dank, um, heavy-hitting, very potent buds. My advice is just be open to the other possibilities. Uh, keep your finger on the pulse of what the public is going to uh, be wanting. Like right now, CBD is so in demand, uh, people trying to make tinctures out of it cannot find enough product, but we're getting CBDs from hemp. Um, I think it was, I just read a thing, Dana Larson or somebody up in Canada was posting, uh, they did the statistics of how much feral hemp there is growing in the United States, what that um, biomass weighs, considering it's a proc, you know, roughly 3% CBD. Well, there's millions and millions of grams of CBD just sitting out there waiting uh, to be found. So again, bear in mind right now, we're in flux in this industry. We've been oppressed for so long and now we're sort of not, but sort of are. Um, it, it remains to be seen. It just really remains to be seen. Interesting. Um, all right, assuming there's people here who are, are, are patients and they're interested in growing their own and they may have never uh, even grown a house plant, but they're interested in creating their own medicine, um, they, they have access to genetics, you know, they can get clones and all of that. Um, what, what steps should they take in order to be growing connoisseur quality medicine for themselves? Well, if you have the opportunity, my advice is outdoors. No lights, no hassle. Uh, I mean, even if you have an apartment with a balcony that has sun exposure, just get a nice 30 gallon pot put your plant in there, and in essence, you know, as we're all know, it's a weed. It, it, it doesn't take a lot to make it produce. But I will recommend this, the, the, the relationship that I have with plants that I grow, it's magic. It's magic. In terms of healing, to grow your own medicine, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Now, if you don't have an outdoor opportunity, there's so much technology available right now, these, these grow tents, uh, uh, it's pretty much plug and play. Uh, just do your research, find what it is you want, but you can pretty much pump out four to six plants in any environment, in a corner of your bedroom, quite safely and quite efficiently. So my advice is by all means, do it. Grow your pot, please. And also, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, do you, do you recommend uh, organic uh, feeding and, and pest uh, control things, and what would you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, I prefer organic soil. But again, um, just consider what your finished product's going to be. You can grow hydroponically and flush correctly and end up with a relatively pure product. Uh, deep water culture, there are a lot of products that are certified organic. Um, organic hydroponics, uh, is aquaponics or guppyponics or aeroponics, someone with the fish. You have fish in a tank with seaweed. Uh, the waste from the fish and the seaweed feed the plants. The waste from the plants feed the fish and the seaweed. 
Um, there are some of these systems uh, developed outdoors in places like Southern California and Maui, um, but they are available indoors as well. Matter of fact, I saw this little one in, I don't know, it was Walmart or Target. It's a desktop thing. It's a little um, guppy ponic. There's fish in the bottom. The plants go in the little things in the top. There's a light that goes over it, and away you go. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's out there, and it's available. Um, so again, uh, yes, soil is the way to go, organic soil, but you do have options uh, in, in, in other venues as well. Excellent. So now uh, we're growing. Uh, you know, we've popped our seeds and we're growing our plants. We're in the vegetative stage. Um, I should go back and say, okay, cannabis marijuana is a, uh, an annual. So it's a plant that grows, you know, the seeds sprout in the spring. It grows vegetatively during the summer and then flowers in the fall. We harvest it, but on a natural scale, it flowers, seeds, and those seeds drop to the ground when it dies, and then it comes back after the winter. Uh, as opposed to a perennial, a plant that comes back year after year after year, which it would be nice if cannabis was a perennial, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it is. Well, technically, I guess, right. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Um, but uh, so basically, when you're growing indoors, you're mimicking those light cycles. And so during the, the spring and the summer, you have uh, longer periods of light, and you induce flowering by cutting the amount of light that the plant gets because you're basically recreating what happens in the fall when a plants get less light and they begin to flower or fruit or whatever it is that they do before they die. So uh, what is your recommended light schedule for the vegetative stage and do you have any other sort of advice for people during that period of growth? Uh, sure, vegetative stage I, I found is not that important. The one that I did finally dial in and this was to keep my male alive my male's been alive since 1998. I think I have the oldest male in the industry. Um, not the oldest female. Uh, Flo is 24 years old, but there are older um, females. Um, the general light cycle in veg is 18.6. Uh, I do 19.5. Like I said, that's just what dialed my, my male in. I do not use a 24-7 light cycle unless I am doing uh, uh, trying to stimulate a regreen uh, project, I can talk about that later if you like, um, or trying to stimulate hard to root clones. I'll give them about 48 hours of solid light and then uh, back off just to give them a little uh, stimulation. Um, now, in terms of bud cycle, and this has been one of the messages that uh, I've, I've been preaching a lot lately to the crowd, and this goes back to the mid 80s. This advice came to me from old timers in the mid 80s. Um, who said, make your night cycle a little longer in, in bud. So I'm right now using 11 on, 13 off, and see remarkable uh, results. Mainly what I see are phenotypic expressions that you do not see with a 12-12 light cycle. Um, now, phenotype and genotype. We'll talk a little bit about that for a second. Genotype is the genetic makeup of something. It's just... What, whatever the, the DNA in something is. You can analyze it, look at it, boom, there it is. Phenotype refers to the expressions that the environment bring out from those genes. The example I like to use, real easy for us to wrap our head around, is cold weather purpling, all right? We've seen this phenomenon. Temps drop down low, plants get dark, they get purple. 
Um, so in order for that to happen, that has to be in the plant's genotype, but you're not going to witness the phenomenon until the plant experiences that environmental trigger. Now we found it's not really a set cold temperature. Uh, we believe it's the difference between day and night temperature. You make a greater difference between day and night temperature, you'll see more purpling, okay? So for those of you that say want to produce purple buds, what this then tells you is towards the end of your bud cycle, let the day temp go up a little higher and bring your night temp down a little bit more and you'll purple those things up. At any rate, that purpling again is the phenotypic reaction of that plant reacting to its environment. So by using this 11 on, 13 off life cycle, which incidentally is also the flower cycle for the tropics, uh, the, the equator uh, and, and all of the tropics, the veg cycle in the tropics is 13 hours of light, 11 hours of dark, and it takes six months for it to switch to do that two hours. That's why sativa take forever to finish. The more north you go, the summer days, of course, get much longer, all the way up to 24 hours. But day by day, they get progressively shorter, um, much quicker the more north you go. And the plants sense this, like, oh, today is 18 minutes shorter than yesterday. I'd better finish up quick. Well, there's indica, ruderalis. Um, uh, whereas your sativa is, oh, you know, today's two minutes shorter than yesterday. I can take my time. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that is the only real difference between indica and sativa that determines the difference between them is flowering time. You see a lot of these, uh, you know, indica sativa ratings and percentages uh, attributed to things. As far as I'm concerned, those are all subjective. For mine, they are. Like when I describe my flow, I describe it as 60% sativa, 40% indica. I'm going by the effect of the finished product, and flow smokes like a sativa, but she finishes in seven weeks. So she's an anomaly. She's a very, um, a one in a million plant, I like to call her. Um, so that's something to bear in mind, the difference between indica and sativa. Um, we're on flowering time, what am I? <laughs> Off on tangents here. Yeah, the, 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 the 11, 13 uh, flowering cycle, you will see phenotypic expressions you won't see on the 12, 12. So you're saying for vegetative, you, you go 19, 5, and for flowering, 11 on, 13 off. Also, one of the advantages to that is you save an hour's worth of electricity every day, which can add up. Um, so that's a, an interesting theory as well, and, and you've put it into practice and seen it work, so yeah. Um, one of the things uh, most beginner growers don't always understand is that you don't have to grow plants from seed every time you grow a plant. You can have a mother plant and you can take clones from the mother plant. And um, so, but one of the most important part of that is to know how to choose a mother plant and then how to take clones from the mother plant. So uh, assuming someone can get themselves on a hand of, uh, uh, on a pack of, you know, 10, or even let's say 50 um, flow seeds, and but they they don't want to just grow it out and flower it. They want to find a keeper mom. What is your advice for those people? Sure, it's pretty simple logic, really. Um, you take all of the seeds you sprout and are growing. When the time comes that you can clone them, you want to do that ASAP. 
Um, now, one thing I found is that some plants from seed will not root when you clone them. It's rare, but it happens, and it does tend to happen with the more desirable looking plants. Given that uh, situation, if you can't get them to root, you're going to want to plan to do a regreen, which in essence is harvesting your plant a little early, a couple weeks early, and then putting it back on a vegetative light cycle and in introducing uh, nitrogen to inspire it to go back into a veg uh, state. Uh, that's again, like I said, I'll do a 48 hours of 24 hour light to try and induce that. Now, once I get clones off of all of those seeds, now they're all labeled as well. Let's just say 10 seeds, keep the math simple, labeled one through 10. I then have my cuttings all labeled one through 10. They're going in a separate room. The plants I took the cuts off of, I will flower, okay? And I will see how they end up. And it will be from there, and again, remember, it's by the effect of the finished product. Now, we're all tempted to see that bud that looks wonderful and think, oh yeah, you're the holy grail, but you cannot judge that until you harvest it, cure it, and smoke it to fully determine its, its, its properties. So once you get to that point, and let's say it was plant number seven is your favorite special one, you go back to that clone number seven, and we're going to want to make a mother plant out of that. And the way we do that is by giving it as much root space as you can afford, um, depending on the space of your room. Uh, for example, if we're using a four or five gallon pot, you're good for about nine months in there. Maybe a year you can stretch. Um, bigger pots, the longer time you can keep that mother going. And then theoretically, you can make however many clones off of that that you want. Um, and you have medicine for the rest of your life. But it's doing that selection process. And right now in the seed industry, at least for my selections, I let some diversity go was my intent. Um, the, the products I sell are, are F5s, fifth filial generation, removed from the land race, which was Thai, Oaxacan, and Afghan. Um, but they have pedigree. I know exactly the route they went down the, the five generations out. Um, and the reason I released F5s is because you have a few generations left to play with. Now, the farther we get from the land races, those Thais and those Afghans and that Oaxacan, and the more they um, breed in that indoor environment, that's what they're acclimating to. I found that out to about F8, I can still detect some of that uniqueness of the land race varieties, but by F10, they pretty much acclimate to be indoor plants. Now, one or two traits is doable. You can pick one or two traits and run with that and make it an inbred line. It's almost impossible to do for three <coughs> or more traits, excuse me. Um, it's, it's, it's chaotic when we get to three variables. Now, the way this is done in the agricultural industry is you will work with one or two variables and harden those, and then if you want one or two other variables, you'll work on another line to harden those and then try to bring those two lines together. Um, so that uniqueness of the land race variety is something to keep in mind, and that's what we're searching for when we sprout those seeds from a pack of seeds, that one that's gonna stand out above the rest, head and shoulders, or the one that you are looking for in particular. 
Like personally, I'm uh, opposed to what I call bland potency. You know, these upper 20% THCs. I just find that stuff god awfully boring in, in its pot form. Now for concentrates, it's another story. Um, so uh, that's, that's just something to bear in mind. Uh, increasing potency or uh, production isn't necessarily a good thing in my book. I want to increase the uh, desirability of that high, everything about it. I want clear focus um, and a lot of those things, that's what I'm shooting for. All right, and how soon after you've induced uh, flowering do you recommend switching over to sort of a higher uh, phosphorus and potassium based Thing and less nitrogen? Um, in all honesty, I'm not the person to be asking that question to, simply because I use very few additives. Um, I like to fortify my soil. Uh, uh, worm castings, number one, bat guano, uh, into the soil, and then as few fertilizers as possible. Um, a few of the things I do like to use, maxi crop, kelp is nice. Right now, uh, the big thing is uh, teas, organic teas, and brewing up our own organic teas, living mycorrhizal that we can spray on the plant. Um, but realistically, just fortifying the soil is, is, I think, the way to go. Just, just really bring it up. Worm castings break down relatively quick. But bat guano does not, especially fossilized bat guano, which means you can reuse your soil a few times. You just have to pay attention to how you're doing it, make sure you're not inducing mold. Um, little tricks like that soil on the top and outer edges of the pot that doesn't have roots through it, well, of course, recycle that stuff, you know. And the things that are very root-bound, yeah, we want to throw, throw that out. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, so uh, now that we're sort of nearing the end of flowering, um, now it comes the time when people are starting to f try to determine when to harvest. Now you also have to determine when to flush. Uh, what are your you know recommendations as far as uh, when to harvest and thus also you know when to flush you know prior? Sure, again, because I'm not using a lot of uh, fertilizers, I'm pretty much flushing all the way through. Um, my outdoor in particular, it's, it's soil, sunlight, air, water. Um, in terms of though commercial growing, when you are using uh, products at least a two-week flush, two weeks before you're going to harvest, the more the merrier. Um, just bear in mind, sure, a lot of these uh, products can help increase productivity, but realize you're consuming that primarily with our lungs okay so I don't want a lot of that extra added stuff in there I want just what the plant and the environment are, are producing for me um, what was the question harvesting right right um, we we check the trichome um, the rule of thumb the the, the basic Rule of thumb is that the earlier we harvest, things tend to be a little headier when the uh, gland heads are more clear. Um, and as they become cloudy, it becomes to be a bit more sedate, a bit more body, and the amber is definitely more in the, in the sedate range. Um, there are exceptions to that rule. It's not always the case, but that's the general rule of thumb. So that's what we look for. Now, um, if you're working with a new strain that you're not familiar with, you're going to have to familiarize yourself with it. My advice is to you is to multi-harvest it. 
take a little bit, that, you know, that first opening of the window, we used to like to call that the window. Uh, and some strains have a, a wider window than others. Some strains have a window that's just a few days. Some strains have a window that's a few weeks. Sativa used to have windows that opened and closed. It was like great for harvest this week, and then all of a sudden, no, it wasn't. And then the week after that, yes, it was. So it's, it, it's paying attention and, and getting that experience, uh, educating your palate. All right, you have that two-week stuff. You have the stuff that's right on schedule. You have the stuff that's two weeks late. What do you prefer? What does your clientele prefer? These are the things we need to figure out um, and keep notes. That's really, you want advice? Just keep your notes. I, I, I cannot emphasize that, that um, advice enough because we're coming towards legalization. What's happening in the places that are legalizing is you have to get a license in order to grow. This happened at the end of alcohol prohibition as well. Now, um, Jack Daniels, for example, made booze all the way through prohibition. When prohibition ended and they needed to get a license, they were asked to solicit their clientele they had been supplying to get affidavits saying no one went blind, no one died. They got their license. So, when you're going to get your legal grow license, you're in line with a lot of other people. If you have a stack of data points that you've been keeping over the last few years, that proves you're serious, all right? It goes a long way to influencing the people who are deciding who gets a license and not. So keep notes, no matter how silly they are, anything. Just, just jot it down, date it, time, whatever, make, so that you can reference it and, and communicate to somebody what you've been doing in terms of R&D. It's gonna go a long way to help you when things do switch, which we're in the process of now. And uh, what, what is your take on CO2 enrichment uh, in, during the flowering period in uh, indoor application? I do know it works. Um, I don't, again, I don't have a lot of first-hand experience working with tanks. <clears throat> I used to do this very simple a uh, little homemade system, uh, gallon jugs, half full with water, a couple cups of sugar, and some yeast in there. Poke a hole in the top, spread a few of them around the room, and when I'd go in there every day, shake them up, and they fizz and bubble, and it smells like you're brewing beer. Um, other things, if you're not running a full-on CO2 system, and I do recommend using it, plants love CO2, I mean, uh, our, our Environmental CO2 is going up We're over 400 ppm now. Uh, I've read a lot of interesting papers about how it's going to affect plants as the future uh, progresses. Um, anyhow, uh, again, something to, to bear with. What the hell is the question again? CO2 is CO2. Okay, thank you. Um, you can borrow CO2 from other things if you're you know, growing in your house, all right? And you have, say, a gas heater, gas furnace, gas water heater. Anywhere there's a blue flame involving propane or natural gas, there's CO2 there available. So put some kind of a, a collector, you know, a, a fan that's drawing from that area and pull it into your room. Um, uh, another thing is like brewing beer or making wine. There's a lot of CO2 that comes off of those. Um, so you could economize and sort of, you know, marry the two up together there. But uh, again, the uh, hot water heater and, and heaters, anything running uh, a blue flame uh, is putting off CO2, and you can utilize that in your room if you like. All right, well, let's get back to uh, the harvest, uh, the harvesting time, and 
um, you know, assuming everything's gone perfectly well throughout the uh, growing, um, let's talk about dr the drying and curing process and, and what, your, uh, what your recommendations and take on that process is. Sure, and I have a system that I've been using. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. If not, then let me mention that right before the chop, right before we take the plant down, three days or 72 hours of darkness, all right? Now, I've heard a new thing just recently. Um, I haven't been able to try it on my own yet, but people are saying that before you do the three days of darkness, do 48 hours with the lights on, right at the end. And what this causes is a little bit of stretch in the bud. And stretch in the bud, let some air go through there, it, as far as we know, is helping to uh, keep down um, powdery mildew and those types of things. Plus, when you get airspace in between the bud, you're getting more trichome development, different types of trichome development. So, uh, 72 hours of dark right before the chop, and this is kind of the way I like to do it. I'm in soil, I'm in a three to four gallon pot. I usually water every four days. So, we all know after we water, the plant was drooping. We water within 20 minutes, half hour, that plant's up praying, just reaching, stretching for the lights. Uh, the first day after watering, starting to come down a little bit. Second day after watering, right about level. And about the third day, she's starting to droop. Fourth day, fully droop. When I see that third day droop, that's when I do my three days <clears throat> worth of darkness. No more water. Plant's in there. Now, the plant is still alive, and it's still pumping out resin onto the surface of the leaves. Now, we know that light breaks down cannabinoids. Um, tests have been done that show that cannabinoid levels are highest right before the lights come on or sun up, and they are lowest right before the lights go off or sun down. Um, so uh, bearing that in mind, we have a plant that for three days is still alive and is still pumping out resin. Now the leaves, they dry, they curl. The, the thing is already starting to cure on the vine. So at the end of that three days, I chop it, hang it, just like I'm going to do, but that curing process is already going on. There is, you know, uh, a larger, ratio of resin, and um, that resin hasn't been broken down by the light so much, so flavor tends to uh, come through uh, a bit more. Then it's just a standard curing after that, getting the bud slowly dried. The only difference uh, now between when I wrote about this was I used to use brown paper bags in part of the process. After the buds came off the plant, they went into brown paper bags. Well, it, we've been found that um, brown paper bags inspire aspergillus mold, so we're quitting using those. The uh, mesh hanging bags work great as a substitute. You get the bud down to the point where when you bend it, it snaps, and you hear and feel that crack in the stem in the middle. Then they can go in the jar. When they go in the jar that day, you're going to want to check them every couple hours. Uh, on that first day because there may be ambient moisture still hung up in that plant. So two hours after you put them in the jar, two, three hours, you open it. If they're still crispy and they're still fine, seal the jar up, check it again three hours later. Um, but if they're wet, if you're feeling that moisture coming out again or that stem does not snap anymore, those buds got to come back out of the jar. 
and go back to the process of drying them a little bit more. Now, when you get to the point, it's about two weeks, depending on your, your ambient uh, air moisture, humidity, um, anywhere from two weeks to, say, six weeks, they're going to be ready in that jar when you can then just seal them up and, and leave them. And I have to say, curing is half the game in terms of desirability. My favorite smoke right now is my Vanaluna cured for two and a half to three years in glass. You gotta grow a lot of outdoor to get that. And one of the techniques I use um, when I am working with outdoor plants in large quantities is large jar first to get it down to that perfect point then I'll take that large jar and fill a whole bunch of little jelly jars and stock those off to the side so I don't have to keep opening the big jar and pulling my stash out. But by keeping them all together in the big jar, they're all sharing that flavor together and that proper cure just brings that flavor out so nice. Well, I'd be remiss uh, to have you up here and not talk about breeding. I know everybody dreams about creating their own strain uh, but obviously it's not as simple as just taking male pollen and putting it on a female plant. I mean, that does create something, right? But uh, what, is, what makes it different to actually breed a strain and take us through uh, maybe a breeding uh, cycle, what you, would, what you would do from start to finish when you're trying to create a new strain? And you can you know, use blueberry as, as an example or, or something different. Sure. Uh, again, I mentioned before, the main criteria I use to judge herb is the effect of the finished product. We're, again, so tempted. Myself, I've done this numerous times. You see that plant in the bedroom, like, oh, you're beautiful. I want you. I really do. But then when the jar test at the end comes, and let me explain the jar test. Basically, you try to fool yourself so you really don't know what's in the jar, or you do and you put it out there for other people to sample. And you have, say, a dozen jars, not necessarily labeled, but some way to identify them all, and which jar empties first. That's generally the best herb, right? Um, and it, it's, it's pretty easy uh, test to do. So bearing that in mind that we're going to wait until everything is done and I'm smoking these and I'm comparing them next to each other, okay? And it's pretty simple for me to do. Yes, I like you a little better than you, all right? And then I like you, I like C a little better than B, I like B a little better than A, and I use a, a, up to a number four a rating scale with a point. So I will sit there and sample my herb and uh, when all is said and done, give the thing a number between you know one and four. Um, generally, three is the cutoff point. It has to be at least a three point or above to be considered, you know, for for future breeding. Um, other than that, it's it's uh, well, selection of males is is. A, tricky uh, aspect. There really is no shortcut. I wish I could tell you there was. There's a few little tricks like tackiness, hollow stems, just looking for resin on males, uh, smoking the males uh, in order to determine that. Um, but there is no shortcut to pollinating that female, producing the seed, drying, curing the seed, sprouting it, and growing it out to determine how the male um, functions. Uh, now, it's interesting what you said about the finished product being the leading sort of factor because 
it seems quite obvious to people that you know the quality of the product should should be the thing that they're looking for. But uh, a lot of times, if breeders are looking for desirable traits, they're you're saying that they're talking about uh, yield or uh, flowering time being a shorter flowering time, flavor, color, all of those things. Um, and none of those things matter as greatly as the quality of the finished product. Yes, correct. But let's say that you're down there and you're, you're sampling that finished product and three of them are pretty much identical in their effect. Now, if one has flavor, produces more, then by all means, that's a secondary consideration. But the first consideration has to be, how does this thing make me feel? Okay, so now you've determined the desirable trait that you're looking for. Um, that feeling. Now, how do you breed for that, and how do you select for that? Well, in essence, it's you know uh, pollen to ovum to make seed, and, and away it goes. Um, it, it's not rocket science uh, that part of it. I should uh, mention also that there are these five objective things that I do look for when I'm sampling herb, and it goes like this. First and foremost is onset. And this is a test I do, it's a stopwatch or a clock. I take my bong rip from a baseline state so I'm not influenced by some other um, product and then how long does it take for me to fully feel the effect of this herb. Now some herb is very quick. Some herb you're getting a rush on the exhale of the bong hit. Other herb it's taking 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes an hour to get the full effect. So we have one differentiation there differentiation there. Short onset, long onset. I prefer long onset because that brings us to the second thing, which is duration. How long does this experience last? Again, it's a matter of looking at a clock and judging how I feel. Short onset herb tends to be short duration herb. Heavy hitting indica. Boom, you're up. Half hour later, you're down. They love that herb in the coffee shops in Amsterdam. It works, you know, and again, one thing, a disclaimer here, um, uh, personal preference. Now I rail against bland potency or say a short onset or a heavy hitting indica. But if you're trying to limit, say, your opiate intake with cannabis, that might be what you want. So it's a matter of personal preference for each person, all right? And my personal preference may not be the same as somebody else's. Just something to bear in mind. So we have onset, duration, um, the next thing is um, sealing, and sealing refers to the more I smoke, the higher I get. All right, some herbs, again, heavy hitting indica, three, four hits, I'm there. You know, if I smoke more, I'm going to get my eyes a little redder, sink a little more into the couch. Whereas a soaring sativa, you get up 10, 12, 14 bong hits, it resembles LSD. You just keep going, it's, whoa, where am I now? Um, so, okay, ceiling. Um, the fourth thing, and this I think is really important, tolerance threshold or burnout. How long before this one burns me out? I've been smoking my blueberry for over 30 years. It takes me about half as much now to get the same effect as when I started smoking it. Um, and this is something that takes at least six months to determine. Uh, tolerance threshold and, and consuming in every conceivable way, wake and bake, lunchtime, late afternoon, <clears throat> evening, nighttime, and then various methods of delivery, joint, uh, pipe, bong hit, vapes, 
whatever uh, to determine whether or not this thing is burning them out. I think that's why a lot of certain herbs are as popular as they are. Uh, the diesels, the OG Kush, because when people get it consistently, it's doing the same thing for them, and they're liking that, so they'll return to that product. But once you go back to something and it's like, eh, been there, done that, you're more than likely not going to return, if that makes sense. So that's one of the things to bear in mind. And then finally, the fifth thing is shelf life. Uh, it's part genetic. Some things last longer than others. Again, it's the heavy-hitting indica, six months to a year down the road. That bud is just dust in the jar. Now, maybe you can salvage it and make some hash out of it, um, but it's gone. Whereas, again, the soaring sativa, my favorite herb is my vanilluna, cured two and a half, three years. Uh, certain characteristics come out. The chlorophyll breaks down. The calyxes go golden. The uh, trichome get this wonderful red, amber uh, color to them, and the flavor. My vanilluna cured for three years is the closest thing I've smoked to Thai. Right? Put it that way. Um, you spoke a little bit about hash, and uh, let's just maybe go through a couple of the different um, ways that you can concentrate, you know, marijuana trichomes. I mean, everybody knows there's ice water extraction and BHO, but if you could go into a little bit of the difference in, of the nuances of that. Oh, absolutely, and this is a fascinating subject. And my advice to people right now, what this industry lacks are formulators. We have people doing extraction, we have the CO2 machines, the people selling the CO2 machines will come and show you how to do what we call the crude or primary extraction. Turning that crude extraction into something fine, that's the work of a master chef, all right? It's an art, it's an absolute art, but it involves a lot of science because we're talking about very precise parameters, temperatures, pressures, flow rates, those types of things. Um, so the, the, the main hashish uh, concentration method is some form of sieving, be that dry sieve or wet sieve. Uh, Morocco, Afghanistan, Lebanon are all dry sieve hatch. Um, and these people have been doing this for thousands of years. They've, they've, <laughs> they've got us beat. We, we got a lot to learn from them. Let's put it that way. They know some tricks. <clears throat> we got technology on our side, plus we can borrow a lot of ancient knowledge, which, uh, which we're doing. So then um, beyond the bubble hash and the dry sieve, uh, we start getting into solvent extractions, I think would be the next. The most basic would be just soaking in glycerin or alcohol for a period of time and then straining off the um, uh, residual matter and keeping the liquid, boiling it down. The Rick Simpson oil uh, methodology is, is, is relatively simple. Um, but there are a lot of different ways. Liquid CO2 right now is probably the most pure pharmaceutically uh, desired way to extract, but uh, what people are doing with butane, with propane, um, with naphtha, with, with, with any of the solvents really, again, providing you're paying attention to detail and cleaning things up, it's, it's, it's not really an issue. And we should also mention that all of that should be done outdoors, if you, you know, and under, you know, very, very strict uh, guidelines because 
you know, you're dealing with, a, uh, in some cases, with some solvents, a very explosive uh, material. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I, I figured we'd go over a couple of breeding terms, uh, S1, F1, and, and all of that. So maybe if you could do a little bit of that, and we're also gonna take some questions at the end from you guys. So think about your questions if you want uh, want to ask us something at the end of this as well. Sure, sure, sure. Future note whiteboard would come in handy here. All right, uh, first line, uh, P1. We hear the term P1. Stands for the first parental generation. Um, in my regimen, that would be the Thai, the Highland Oaxacan, the chocolate Thai, and the Afghan, all right? Um, P1s are where the numbers are important. I had to, somewhere between two and 3,000 of these pass through my hands to find the three that I selected. Okay, so what I ended up doing um, was taking two very dissimilar things. As I mentioned before, the indica showed up in 78, all right? When it showed up, it was novel. You have to realize, prior to 78, we were growing sativa, long-running sativa, 14, 16, 18, maybe 20-week, 22-week sativa under fluorescence, all right? Uh, we're talking two, three-inch canopy, um, but it's all we had to work with. So, and that stuff was like impossible to manicure. Even if you grew it outside, it looked beautiful. It grew beautiful outside, but it, it was very leafy. Um, <clears throat> sometimes the buds wouldn't form very large. Um, so here comes this indica. Uh, short, dense, stout, smells like a skunk died under the house, knocks you on the couch. We were used to these soaring sativa highs. It was novel at the time. It was very novel. It was like, oh, hello. Very easy to manicure, short uh, flower time, and it's like, let's go with this. Now, at the time, all the contemporaries I was working with, I was involved with people, communicating with people all the way from uh, uh, Seattle down to San Francisco, um, they went the opposite way I did. Now, I went both ways, which I'm talking about which pollen from which source. Um, the way I went was taking the pollen from the indica to the female sativa. All my contemporaries back in the day went the other way. They took the sativa pollen to the indica female because of how unique and novel she was. Now, I did the same thing, but I tested them next to each other, and I much preferred the other route, the indica pollen to the sativa. Now, um, when we cross those, we're making our F1s, the first filial generation. Filial means brother, sister. Um, and when we're using two very different uh, genetic starting parents, uh, there's a phenomenon in, in biology called transgressive segregation. I, I didn't learn about this until after the fact, but this is what happened. Uh, I use the uh, uh, dog breeding as an example because it's easier for, to wrap our heads around than it is with plants. But say we could cross two very dissimilar dogs, a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. <clears throat> Let's hope that the Great Dane is the mother. Um, and at any rate, that's our P1 generation is Great Dane and Chihuahua. We make our F1s that are going to be uniform. This is the thing about the F1 generation. They are all the same. Mine looked like, I call them Lebanese plants, medium height, long spear-shaped buds with the full cacophony of flavor. It's like you spilled paint in a perfume factory with rotten berries and burgundy, and I mean, just every flavor imaginable is, is, is in, that, uh, in that cross. Um, now, you take those F1s, 
any two. Now with the dogs, those F1s would end up being mid-sized between the Chihuahua and Great Dane, something like a, a pit bull or a boxer. Take any two of the F1s, cross them uh, with themselves, and you create the F2 line. And in the F2 line, according to transgressive segregation, we should witness phenomenon that go beyond the boundaries of the um, original parent stock. So in the dog breeding analogy, you'll see dogs bigger than a Great Dane and smaller than a Chihuahua. In the pot breeding analogy, the F2 generations is where then I see a berry mother and a berry father and I select them purposefully. Now there's everything in that F2. I mean, there were berries, there were oranges, there were uh, full, uh, every flavor of haze. Every flavor of haze. Impossible to work with at the time, but they're sitting in freezers right now waiting to see the light of day. Um, and so I take the berry male, berry female in that F2 line, cross them, if I did it right, in the F3 line, I'm going to see 25 to 50% of that progeny showing me that berry line. Then again, in the F3 line, I pick a berry male and a berry female. If I get to my F4s and I did it properly, I should be seeing 50 to 75% of that trait, which I then take out to the F5s. And that's what I release then, are the F5s. Now, F5s theoretically should be 75%. Um, uh, I guarantee 50% just to, you know, in case somebody does see more diversity in there, it's uh, something less to complain about. Uh, but that's the basic uh, regimen and then taking it out from there. Again, if you were to take, if you wanted berry and all you want is that blueberry muffin smelling mother, you can do that. You start at that F5 seeds, get your most berry mother, your most berry father, go out to your F6. If you could couple in the outdoor environment with this and find an outdoor environment that really brings out that berry flavor, you're that much closer to producing your own uh, IBL or your own land race, which basically takes about 40 generations. Um, but uh, that's how to do it. And you can take that one or two traits out forever. You can harden that if that's what you want. But I found that just going for flavor pro profile, I'm sacrificing something in the effect. And again, remember, it's the effect of that finished product. All right, and uh, for the people who will never make their own strain or aren't, aren't interested in that sort of thing and really just want, want some quality medicine for themselves and they want to just grow their own um, and, and are a bit confused sometimes about all the different information that's out there, um, maybe if you could kind of boil it down for them what the essence of what they need to know or understand about the photosynthetic pro process or whatever it might be, um, in order to just grow themselves a quality medicine. Yeah, again, the technology is helping so much right now. The light systems that we have available. And we're finding that light frequency, the actual color of the light, influences that finished product, flavor in particular. Uh, blue metal highlights tend to be sweeter, more berry. Um, the orange uh, sodiums tend to be a bit more piney and diesel-y. Uh, but where there's people actually doing some studies on this and, and showing that specific light frequencies are responsible for specific flavors. Um, but that's getting a little technical and I think we want to address the, the simpler issue of, of basically it's find what you like, all right? Uh, try to satisfy your own head. I, I use that term, you know, people ask me, how'd you come up with the blueberry? So I'll try to satisfy my own head. 
when I give my, my lectures, my classes, I do this whole one-hour spiel about ethics in the cannabis industry. And I say, just to paraphrase that, you know, what do I mean, satisfy my own head? That's the one that helped me heal, right? And you know what best helps you find your center, helps you heal, right? Um, and that's what I go by. That's what I go by. And I found that when I found the one that helps me heal, and I take it out in the world, it's helping a lot of other people heal too. But that's what it's about, healing. And, and, and healing is, you know, it, it has a divine order to it. We need to heal ourselves first. I use this example of uh, uh, airlines and when the oxygen mask drops and you have children, they say put yours on first, put your children's on next. There's a reason for that. Because if you're struggling with your children, before you put yours on, you could succumb. Then everybody loses. All right? And children can go longer without oxygen than we can. They bounce back quicker. So you have to override that reflex. Heal ourselves first. Figure out what it takes to do that, to heal myself. And by what I mean by healing, I'm not talking about curing. Curing is a different story. Curing is setting a bone. Curing is putting things back the way they were. Healing means... I'm able to enjoy life. I am able to appreciate the beauty in life. And what I found is, with pot especially, there's beauty in everything. There's even beauty in the pain, right? And that's a heavy, a heavy thing, but pot helped me figure that out. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking to heal ourselves, to heal our, you know, what people that come on our path, our community, and ideally our planet. And that's what this plant really is just uh, phenomenal for doing. Very interesting words. <laughs> awesome. And when you hear it, it sounds like it makes sense and it's obvious, but the truth is when people are looking through seed catalogs, they're looking at, oh, this one finishes in 53 days, this one finishes in 48 days. So they pick the 48 days. I mean, that's what he's saying is don't, Another thing we can do right now, you're going through the seed catalog to buy seeds. Buy the bud first. You know, find it in a dispensary. Find it somewhere and sample it that way. What I want to do in the future, another thing when I'm doing seed sales, I did this in Europe actually when I sent my seeds over there. I want to sell them in the bud because that way when you get them, you can crunch that bud up, smoke it, and you know what you're shooting for. I released my mother's strains, the blueberry and the flow. A lot of people in the industry looked at me and said, what are you doing? And my rationale was such that I know there's enough representatives of them out there that it's not going to hurt me you know, financially. My intent was I wanted the public to know what my idea of blueberry and flow is. Because a lot of people buy a pack of seeds. I hear this a lot. Oh, I improved the blueberry. Really? What did you do? You made it more potent. Well, good for you. Bland potency is very easy to replicate. It's a potent female, it's a potent male, off we go. The comparative word in the wine and spirits industry is character. Does it have character? Just because it has potency doesn't mean it has character. Again, personal preference. Some people want Mad Dog 2020, right? Some people want Thunderbird. Other people want a fine bottle of Merlot. That's what I'm after, the fine bottom or low. But I'm not knocking the people that want the Thunderbird. You know, that's, that's your point of preference. And it's a market, a demand to be satisfied. 
So it's, it's you know, your perspective on, on what it is you want to produce. And that's why his book is called Cultivating Exceptional Cannabis. <laughs> because it's exceptional. But uh, we have some time for some questions. So uh, I don't know how far I can go out there with the uh, microphone. So if you have questions, maybe you could come up uh, or raise your hand and we could get your uh, info. We got some time now before 420. Uh, if you got some questions for DJ. Yes, sir. Is your book available? Is your book available? Unfortunately, no. Um, I'm working on a revision right now. It's out of print. Um, hopefully, it will it will be. I did notice online. I think they're going for like ninety bucks or a hundred bucks. Somebody had one on there for nineteen hundred and ninety eight dollars. Um, don't buy that one, please. Um, at, at, at any rate, it's it's coming. I will be doing another version. If you do find them online, it costs. My advice is to buy them. I am. <laughs> and if people want seeds also, that's a good question. Where, what's the ideal place to go for DJ Short certified genetics? Sure, right now that's me. Um, uh, there, there's the Ohm of Medicine in Ann Arbor. I'm, I'm working with them. Sometimes I go to the uh, G3C, Genesee County Compassion Club. People know about the G3C here. It's the coolest herb scene in the world. It needs to be replicated. It really does. It's a farmer's market, if you're not familiar. It's a, a member's thing. You pay 20 bucks a year. They have 8,000 members that pays the rent, keeps the lights on. Uh, the vendors show up, uh, rent booth space for you know shifts in the day, and then it's direct commerce between the patient and the farmer. Uh, On-site consumption, music, everything you need to buy there. It's a really cool scene. Check it out. Um, better than that, like replicated. It needs to be in Detroit. It needs to be in Grand River, um, please, or Grand Rapids rather. Anyone else? Yes, sir. All right. Right. I, I never delved into the nutrient uptake aspect of it, but I'm the opposite. I prefer sodiums and veg and blue highlights in bud. Again, because blue highlights generally tend to make sweeter bud, whereas the sodiums tend to make more of a diesely sour uh, finish, and I prefer the, the, the sweet one uh, myself. There are a number of different things <clears throat> on the market right now. The helicopter lights, I don't know if you're familiar with. I don't even know what they're calling them. I'm calling helicopter lights. They used to be called spinners, but something else is a spinner now. It looks like a ceiling fan, and at the end of this ceiling fan blade is a 150-watt bulb, all different Kelvin. There's six of them between 2,000 and 10,000 Kelvin. Spins once a second up above the plants. I'm seeing deep penetration in these uh, thumb-sized buds way down in the canopy. It's the closest thing to outdoor I've seen. Um, uh, interesting things with that system, self-cooling because the lights are moving, just put the ballast outside the room. And number two, interesting phenomenon, a plant will grow into a light bulb and kill itself. I've seen this numerous times, it'll commit suicide on the bulb. Um, a plant will not grow into a moving object. So it goes up to these uh, spinning systems, senses it, and the canopy just automatically spreads itself. Um, they're, they're pretty nice. Now there's another product I heard about coming out on the market here relatively soon. It's an LED system. The name I heard was Lady Lamps, L-A-D-Y Lamps. They're supposed to be fully tunable LEDs that can produce any spectrum of light. But here's the amazing thing I'm hearing. Now I'm hearing this, so I, I need to 
verify whether or not this is true, but it's coming from good sources so far. Um, 16 watts of power producing 56 dry grams of bud. This is phenomenal. This is four grams of bud per watt. And they're fully tunable, and people are working on uh, software, computer programs, for the things to emulate sunrise, midday, sunset, and seasonal changes. And they're going to cost roughly 80 to $90 a piece, but you need one unit per plant, and they're supposed to last 150,000 hours. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind. Again, the technology is changing very rapidly. My preference, though, still is for outdoor. We can't beat the sun. We really can't beat the sun. Yes, sir. Uh, pesticides. <laughs> pesticides. Well, okay, I cheated. Um, the way I beat spider mites was I moved to the high desert. Back in the day, we used to joke, or in, in Eugene, and, and uh, red spider mites were the scourge at the time. Uh, we were able to deal with the green ones, but the red ones we couldn't for some reason back then. I remember we were at a party, somebody says, oh, how do I deal with the red spider mites? I go, oh, you have the board, you have the thing. And someone asked, you know, uh, your house insurance paid up? Because it was the only way to get rid of them back then. You had to burn the house down. Um, the board, they, the two months, they can sit dormant pregnant and then come out. Um, organically, number one, keeping it clean. You cannot beat cleanliness. Number two, be wary of how the bugs are getting in. Primarily, shoes. Shoes and pets. Um, so don't wear your street shoes into your grow room. You know. um, yeah? Have you ever tried uh, cedar oil? Have you had any cedar oil? Yeah, actually a lot of the tree oils, a lot of the oils um, do tend to work. Uh, I don't have personal experience with them. My solution was to move to the high desert, um, which, which did work. Another um, aspect, one thing that I do is I uh, rejuvenate my mothers every year outdoors. So I'll have a mother plant that's, say, in a four or five gallon pot, and I'm taking cuts off it all year. She gets tired come, you know, March, April. I take her outside, um, get her out of the pot. Now, anytime you're transplanting and you have root wrap, and those roots are anything but bright white, rip them off there. Just get them right off there. Yes? On, on like big plants, same thing. Like, okay, so I'm taking my five gallon out in the garden, I tip it on its side, get the pot off, I take a shovel, just take that whole bottom part of the root ball out. The plant doesn't mind, it's just gonna put out more roots. But those brown roots is where your mold is going to develop, right? So, uh, I get my plant outdoors, uh, come late July, early August, she's back. She's just fully back. The stems are thick, supple, uh, even though they're woody, they've got uh, nice moisture in them, they're succulent, they clone wonderfully, they come back to nine leaflets, 11, whatever. Um, so then come late July, early August, I take my cut for next year. That's next year's mother. Root her, or several of them, and it gets rid of the mildew, the mold, the bugs, that, that outdoor environment, plus the plants, after a few years, I think they know, and they actually have this, uh, develop their immune system such that they know that outdoor sun is coming so they tend to hold out a little longer. Um, diatomaceous earth is another uh, great, it's the white powder. Um, they use it in uh, 
swimming pool filtration, but you don't want to use that stuff. You want to get the agricultural. And spread that stuff everywhere, on the floor around your room, outside of your house, around your house. Um, it, it's a barrier for the bugs. Uh, another organic trick is um, uh, putting positive pressure, air pressure, in your room so that there's always an outflow of air. Um, the way those things get around is amazing. They'll put out a little uh, web and then fly with it. Um, so if there's only air coming out of a room, they have a hard time getting in. Um, again, though, nothing beats cleanliness. Uh, people also, uh, the light, I, I've seen some t-shirts advertising them here, the um, uh, UV lights that kill all bacteria. Um, somehow, it would seem to me that if you could get that in the room, you would stop the, the motion of the spores. I heard about this other thing too, General Hydroponics was talking about, I haven't seen it marketed yet, it sounded amazing. It's just a tube on the floor of the grow room with a fan blowing in one end, the other end capped, and holes on the top, creating a constant updraft in the middle of the room. They say that the um, powdery mildew spores will never light, uh, given that, and that uh, the mites can't reproduce, uh, given that uh, going on in there. Um, another thing, Home Depot, you can get again for the shoes, these sticky mats. There's like 50 layers of sticky. You put that, make sure you step on it going in and out of the house. Uh, but just that attention to detail, I think, is more important than anything. Uh, if you're buying clones from somewhere else, quarantine them in a separate location. Um, but yeah, the, the, the bugs are pretty terrible. I mean, and they're, they're getting strong, too. Predator, yeah, predator mites and ladybugs, too. Uh, when they get hungry, they'll keep the, the mites in check, for sure. All right, you guys, it's almost 420. I just want to say thank you so much for coming here. We're celebrating our 40-year anniversary with High Times Magazine. We couldn't have done it without you guys, without all the advancements that have been made here. I just want to thank you guys for coming to this. I want to thank DJ Short. And thank you, Danny. Thank everybody here. Thank you, Michigan. If you do want to contact me, it's djshortseeds at yahoo.com. Once again, djshortseeds at yahoo.com. I'll have a website someday. <laughs> well, it's been an honor having you here. Uh, thank you so much for uh, you know sharing this information, sharing the genetics, spreading the message, spreading the word, and all of the wonderful things that you've done over all the years. And uh, thank you guys, thanks a lot. Have a great 420, thank you for having us and uh, have fun, take care, celebrate the plant and continue fighting for the freedom of the plant. Thank you very much guys, bye. All right, so there you guys go. Uh, that was our discussion with Mr. DJ Short. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to remind you that, that uh, this episode is brought to you by BC Northern Lights. Uh, they make the best grow boxes in the business, um, fully automated growing appliances. You can get over five harvests every year in these things. And if you want to grow out some of those amazing DJ short strains, um, you could not do better than to get yourself one of these uh, producers or bloom boxes or roommates and get growing today with BC Northern Lights. You can call them at 888-236-1266. That's toll free, 888 888- Two three six one two six six, or check them out at bcnorthernlights.com. As always, don't forget to tell them that free weed from Danny Danko sent you.
Yes, and uh, we want to thank BC Northern Lights for sponsoring this uh, entire episode so we could give it to you without any kind of commercial interruption. Yeah, no interruptions, courtesy of BCNL. And also, uh, we want to thank DJ Short for being kind enough to come on there and talk with us and uh, reveal some of his uh, secrets and tips and tricks and, and something about himself as well. Yeah. And, you know, I want to thank at Ryan Who Is because I didn't feel like doing a show this week. But when I woke <laughs> up this morning, I saw his tweet, which said, Yo, where do weed at? Been fiending something fierce for some Mike and Dan. <laughs> nah, seriously, hope all is well. And that lit a fire under my ass. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, here we are. We got uh, episode 68 uh, in the books for you guys. And uh, we're excited about the next one. And we're excited about Seattle. So come join us if you can. September 6th and 7th in uh, Everett, Washington. CannabisCup.com. Check right. it out. Get, Comcast get yeah. Arena. Right. It's going to be pretty amazing. That's a U.S. Cannabis Cup, so anyone can come and get high with us and hang and it's, out. And it's a hockey stadium. Like, it's a real stadium. It's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, so we're heading to, to Seattle or Everett pretty soon, but we'll be back with more free weed. So any questions or comments you have, uh, get us at freeweed at hightimes.com. Also on Twitter, he is at Danny Danko. I am at Mike Hughes underscore. So do that. We will get to them. Yeah, check us on Facebook and uh, and all those other things, too. All right. You got anything else? Uh, no, I, I guess I'll just say, uh, you know, thanks to DJ. Thanks to BCNL. Thanks to co-host and producer Mike Hughes and uh, Free Weed number 68. Put it in the books. 